0: Just a content warning that this episode is mostly about misogyny online and the threats that Alex has received. We don't go into detail about the nature of those threats, but just giving you a warning in case you feel that this episode isn't one for you to listen to. Welcome to the Resilience Rising podcast with me, your host, Jen Scottney. With the help of my guests, we will be getting curious about what resilience is, how we develop it, and the times we've used it. This podcast is here to explore all things resilience. On today's episode, I'm here talking to Alex Marr. Alex is a doctoral researcher at Loughborough University studying feminism and misogyny on TikTok in no small part as a result of her own experiences as a creator on the app. After downloading TikTok as a fact-finding experiment to aid her marketing career, her feminist skits and political hot takes saw her rise to popularity and notoriety, with anti-feminists revealing the dark underbelly of an app seen as light entertainment for most. Her research seeks to expose the potentially radicalising and harmful influence of such people operating on the app in order to better support women using social media to change inequality. Alex lives in Sheffield with a partner and her Cocker Spaniel, with whom she's often found roaming the Peak District to disconnect from the small screen. Well, you're half disconnected here today, Alex, because we're doing this online. But thank you so much <laughs> for joining me.
1: Oh, it's my pleasure. Thanks for having me on,
0: Jane. Oh, wow. OK. I've got so many questions about your research and what you've been doing. Um, but yeah, resilience that's what we're also here to talk about. And I think for you, I kind of, you sprung to mind because I just think of your resilience in putting yourself out there as a TikTok activist. I don't know if that's really a phrase. (laughs) But um, yeah, and I just thought, wow, she keeps going, she keeps turning up every day. Is that kind of where resilience is for you as well?
1: Oh, 100%. You know, I've been thinking about what resilience actually is in my world anyway and I think so much of it is just showing up and and keeping calm and carrying on to be honest because you know I think as a woman online there was a stat recently which said that you're 27 times more likely to experience hostility and abuse which I don't think comes as a massive shock to most women that are listening to this but I think especially as a feminist creator you're engaging with conversations that they're contentious like not everyone is on the same wavelength as you and um it does kind of like ruffle feathers and so you end up being exposed to even more kind of like vitriol and abuse than you would if you were just posting everyday content um and yeah, it's, it's a lot sometimes. to me. Like, yeah. How
0: did it start? Did you start off with your social media accounts? Like, well, like mine is now with pictures of my dog and occasionally a nice lunch I've made. <laughs> like, Or did you actually go into these thinking this is going to be a platform and a tool that I can use?
1: Well, it's funny because, um, I mean, I'm a millennial. So I was like, what, 14, 15 when Facebook kind of burst onto the scene. And so, you know, most of my adult life has been in some way online um but the kind of feminist side to things is really quite new it was actually i've been in marketing for like almost a decade at this point and during the pandemic i was on furlough and everyone started talking about this tiktok i mean it'd been a while around for a little while but like i think it was only during the pandemic that everyone just got bored and was open to trying to explore this new app which i think up to that point people just sort of dismissed as being an app for like teenagers who do dance videos and stuff but as a marketer, I was like, well, I need to know what this new app's all about. So I downloaded it and just started like goofing around and was doing some of the you know basic trends and stuff just to sort of see how it worked so that I could maybe set up accounts for clients or whatever. Um, and as part of our experimentation, I just thought, well, you know, as with all social media, it's just best to be like your authentic self. So I started doing some like comedy skits, which usually had like um an ironic sort of feminist sort of undertone and they started doing really well and it kind of just snowballed from there. And I just kind of did more and more of that because it was what I was interested in. I liked having those conversations anyway. Um I have identified as a feminist as long as I can remember. And so, yeah, it just sort of, I, I don't know. It happened really quickly. Uh, suddenly I ended up with like 40,000 followers pretty much overnight. And that was a real shock to the system. Like I hadn't set out to become a quote unquote influencer It was just suddenly people were kind of, I don't know, like my identity started to shift. And I actually took a bit of a break from from kind of posting a lot of content because I just didn't really know how to wrap my head around this new identity that I hadn't really sought to create. It was a very strange experience to be honest. (laughs) And And then
0: kind of moving on pretty quickly like that sounds really positive and really good but like and I mentioned in your intro about these kind of well we called it like the dark underbelly we called it like Mm -hmm. about radicalizing harmful like did that appear as the following grew or was it the things that you were now posting in your content that drew that?
1: I think it's a little bit of both I think as my content started getting more exposure naturally not all of that exposure was going to lead to like positive responses um most of the time i would say especially in the early days my content was received really positively and for whatever reason the tiktok algorithm kind of shared my content predominantly with women who could see themselves and what i was talking about online and so generally the comments sections were pretty positive but i posted a video where i stitched which just basically means like joined up one of my videos with the video of another creator and this creator was a so-called men's rights activist although to be perfectly honest he was a really young boy who well, I say young boy of 19 who um, basically just posted an awful lot of misinformation and just his own opinions kind of positioning it as as men's rights activism but so much of what he was actually peddling was was either explicitly misogynistic or was quite sexist I made the mistake of stitching one of his videos because I wanted to call out something that he'd said and explain why it was problematic and I ended up <laughs> experiencing I think it was like between three days to a week of sustained trolling and it's funny because I think you know everyone knows what trolling is you know it's just getting your, your comment section filled with people sending vitriol like that's that doesn't sound like that big a deal right it's just it's just a comment section like you can just brush it off. But that was the first time I'd ever really experienced like a sustained kind of online attack like that. And what I realised is that however resilient you think you are, however thick skinned you think you are, until that sort of thing happens to you, you don't realise actually how damaging it can be. And I always think, I'd, I don't know, I think I thought that if something like that happened to me, which I knew as I was growing, I knew there was a chance that at some point that would happen. Um, I kind of assumed I'd be all right with that but the way I sort of describe that experience to people is it's the equivalent of having a pack of rabid wolves burst into your house and you run upstairs and shut the door like that doesn't really fix the problem me turning my phone off putting my phone away deciding to ignore TikTok for a while didn't it didn't stop the fact that I knew I was having hundreds and hundreds of people tell me you know, that they hated me, that they wanted to do awful things to me, that they wanted to kill me and, you know, other awful things. Like, if you have hundreds of people telling you that, even online, as pixels on the screen, it has a very real effect on on your well-being. And so, yes, I shut the door. Yes, I put my phone down. But it it didn't stop that really having a very negative impact on my mental health. And that was really a short term thing. But I think the long term consequence was that I just felt quite fearful of that happening again. Um, Because the thing is, yes, you are getting hundreds of people saying that they want to kill you or whatever. And most of them don't mean it. They just want to scare you. All it takes is one person to actually follow through with that. And there is a history of that happening, you know, like that. That is what happens to women who do take up space and and do challenge, you know, patriarchal societal norms. And it's hard not to be scared of that. Um, so, yeah, I think when I said at the beginning that keep like kind of keeping calm and carrying on, it's that is that's kind of what's in the back of my mind all the time is, you know, how safe is this space to occupy and, and do I want to keep going? And to be honest, the bottom, bottom line for me is, yes, I do. I, I believe that women should not be scared or flying. And that's kind of the large inspiration behind my PhD work. It's that I want to make sure that policymakers and, you know, people that are out there trying to make sure that the internet is a safe space are well-equipped with the information they need to ensure that women are safe and are able to use their voice uh, on these platforms um, without being fearful of what could happen. Uh, it
0: sounds awful. Like, I'm so sorry that you had to go through that. And when you were getting that level of vitriol, like, was that prior to your because I believe you did a master's before the PhD started. Like was this still kind of in your part-time um like just online or had you started your research by then?
1: I'm not entirely sure whether I'd already started my first masters. I think I think it was actually before, because I think it was actually that experience that really made me think very seriously about the reality of what it is to be online as a woman. And I think, you know, from my extremely privileged position as a white, cisgender, middle-class woman, you know, I, I do have a lot of freedom to say and be whoever I want online without experiencing things like racism or, you know, homophobia or anything like that. But as soon as I started saying, well, just I think, I think, do you know what that video was actually about? I think I was just saying why it's ridiculous that men tell women to get in the kitchen and make them a sandwich. It wasn't even a serious topic and yet the amount of hatred that that elicited was really revealing to me um and yeah I think it just started making me think god this is this really matters you know like if women can't even say things like that if we can't call out a man for saying something as like generically sexist as that what hope do we have for you know, unpicking the serious issues that affect women today. You know, over in America, you've got Roe v. Wade being overturned and people's right to autonomy of their own body being questioned. Over here, you've got rape effectively being decriminalised with only like 1.3% of rape cases even leading to a charge. You know, we have serious, serious issues that need addressing. If we can't even explain why you can't say to a woman to go in the kitchen and make them a sandwich, if we can't even have that conversation... It just speaks volumes as to how much work there still is to be done. Um, and I've always been like quite a passionate person. I've always believed that we will have the, the capacity to make change. And I just think in the digital age, we have connective action. We have people's ability to use these platforms to rally together and facilitate change, just as we saw, for example, in like the 2017 Women's March. That was all facilitated and coordinated in like three days, I think, on social media these digital platforms have real change-making potential and if women are being scared offline that's that's hugely problematic and um I think yeah to be honest I didn't set out to become an academic in in that way it wasn't it wasn't the goal but I've just always been really interested in this and I, I don't know it just it just happened. It's really strange. I, I just, yeah, I ended up one day signing up to do um, a master's in digital media and society at Loughborough, and um, I had an amazingly supportive tutor who really encouraged me to persevere with this line of research because he said, you know, people just don't take things like TikTok seriously, and you clearly do, and there's clearly work to be done here, and why not, you know, push that agenda forward? So suddenly, here I am, like almost a year into a PhD, and this. Was- <laughs> Very
0: surreal. It's fascinating. And how did you start that research? I guess you want to speak like you had your own personal experience, but were there already studies out there that you could rely on? Or is this such a new area um, that you were having to undertake your own research in this?
1: Research relating to TikTok specifically is is quite um, rare. There isn't an awful lot of TikTok content in academia, um, but there was somebody who actually I found on TikTok, surprise, surprise, who um, is one of the earliest researchers in. She, she talked a lot about things like misinformation and disinformation on TikTok, she posted a study which I found fascinating, um, where she basically set up a new TikTok account and wanted to see how long it would take before she was exposed to kind of like alt-right content and basically she was analyzing how the for you page and the algorithm feeds up content to people and kind of trying to address whether it has like a radicalizing potential which I think anecdotally most people that use TikTok kind of know it does have that potential because it does seem to get to know who you are and what you're interested in really quickly so you can see how things could snowball that way and um i can't remember the the exact findings of that research but bottom line it didn't take very long before she was exposed to very extreme content that was addressing things like transphobia and um you know extreme misogyny and and all sorts of things like that so There isn't much out there at the moment, but there are plenty of people that are looking closely at TikTok and and its potential, both the good, the bad and the ugly, I would say. Um, But no, to be honest, there isn't an awful lot out there. So this is what I'm I'm hoping to do is really try and shine a light specifically on how TikTok facilitates conversations around feminism and misogyny. because those two things obviously go hand in hand, as what, I sort of experience.
0: Yeah. Why particularly TikTok? Is this kind of extrapolate extrapolated to other social medias or is the platforms or is there something specific about
1: TikTok? What is unique about TikTok is the way that it has algorithmically prioritised content in a way that many other social media platforms like Facebook and Instagram, for example, don't do in the same way. So the algorithm really does dictate the kind of information and content that a user is exposed to. So on TikTok, you've got two tabs. You've got the following page, which shows you the content of people that you already have actively chosen to follow. And then the other tab is the for you page, which is all the algorithm deciding what to show you. And it does so based off of content you've already engaged with or interacted with. And and that interaction could just be that you've watched the video the whole way through. It doesn't even necessarily mean that you agree with it, but it means that it might then show you something similar again. And I think if you're exposed to a similar message over and over, that can have an influencing impact. And so when you're talking about things like feminism, that can be a really positive impact. You could have someone that just engages with a beauty tutorial in which someone's talking about, I don't know, freedom of choice. And that could snowball into them actually having quite, you know, far advanced feminist thoughts and debates, and that could obviously be really positive. The flip side, of course, is you could have a young boy, and we we know that there are really young children on TikTok. You'd have a young boy that just laughs at, I don't know, a seemingly innocuous video about women getting into the kitchen and making them a sandwich. And that could then, before long, mean that the For You page is serving up content that is very explicitly misogynistic, or blames women for the problems that men face. And it's very difficult to tackle that. And it's difficult for parents, for example, to safeguard that because you don't know what content they're being exposed to unless you're watching over their shoulder all the time. So I don't want us to sound like TikTok is a terrible, terrifying thing. I think it's definitely got huge potential to, to do good. But I think we do need to look at this very closely and seriously and consider the impact of allowing an algorithm, allowing a computer to dictate something as important as people's political views or their attitudes to marginalised groups and communities, for example.
0: And how this is something that I definitely haven't really thought about in much detail before. Like, why is this happening? Is this just a matter of, well, it increases engagement? Or is there something more sinister? Do we have to look at who owns these platforms? Because to be honest, other than the kind of high profile, Twitter and um, Facebook kind of when it's been in the news, who's owning those? I don't really know about other platforms
1: yeah it's a really good point and I think recently there's been a lot of news coming from America about um people wanting to ban TikTok because it's owned by a company called ByteDance which is based over in China in contrast with Facebook and Instagram which are obviously owned by Meta which is a US-based company and so this idea that because it's Chinese it's inherently more dangerous I think is is massively reductive but um Yeah, I think in terms of in terms of the risk factor attached to these platforms, I think you're right when you say it is all about engagement. The bottom line is that in a capitalist society, people are out to make money and people make money on digital platforms by keeping people engaged, watching content and then being exposed to advertising as a consequence of that. So all of these app all of these apps, whether it is TikTok, whether it is Instagram, whether it's Facebook, they do want people to stay online and to engage with the platform so that they can ultimately sell to them. Um, and as to whether or not that's harmful, you know, that's a kind of a whole other conversation. But I think These companies aren't out specifically to try and radicalize people or to try and like indoctrinate the next generation with dangerous ideas that I don't think that's the goal I think it's just that they want to keep people engaged and showing people information and content that we know that they're already going to like because they've engaged with it previously is a really good way of doing that and that's why I think you know in some research I did two years ago in my first dissertation I asked Gen Z users of TikTok how often they um spent on TikTok like how long they they thought they were on the platform and conservatively the answer was pretty much four hours a day and that's a lot of time um so you know while TikTok is profiting off of the fact that those people will have naturally been exposed to lots of advertising and they'll have made money from the user's presence on the app um you've got to think about what content they're consuming at the same time and the kind of influence of that content and that's really what I'm what I'm interested in
0: and In terms of kind of what you've found on there, I mean, like, I'm aware of high profile cases such as Andrew Tate being in the news. Is this just the tip of the iceberg and there's actually huge swathes of content? Do they follow a pattern? Are they from a certain area or certain generation? What is it on there?
1: I would say, unfortunately, I think the likes of Andrew Tate are the tip of the iceberg. It's difficult to say, um, you know, empirically exactly how much of that content is there because you, you, you can't, you can't really see it all. Um, But there is, there is plenty of that kind of content out there. And when Andrew Tate was deplatformed, it didn't really matter because there were so many other people that were his hard, hardcore fans that were willing to repost his old content and set up fan pages. You know, the ideas he was perpetuating didn't die with him being deplatformed. And that's what, is the most worrying thing for me um and you know you're seeing reports coming out from schools where teachers are increasingly concerned about the kind of rhetoric that the likes of Andrew Tate are pushing out there how it's become very normalized and they're seeing the consequence of that in the classroom um and I think you know just on a personal level I think what does scare me the most is when you've got young people looking up to these um The likes of someone like Andrew Tate and seeing them as kind of idols, seeing them as people to look up to because they pretend that they have vast amounts of money and huge amounts of wealth. And even though in Andrew Tate's case, a lot of that was proved not to have been the case at all, it doesn't matter. They've created that facade, they've created that impression. And we know throughout history that charismatic people, charismatic leaders have the capacity to have incredibly horrific you know influences on on the world so it's a very difficult thing to kill an idea and so when you've got specifically misogyny becoming a normalized rhetoric it's going to be a very difficult thing to to really unpick because those people that are more often than not those people that are perpetuating that kind of narrative don't have any issue with using misinformation and disinformation in order to further their own agenda um and that's a very difficult thing to tackle. It's, it's just very difficult to explain why something is, is wrong or why something is untrue. Um, so, and it's especially this, to people that yeah. want to believe that, you know.
0: And I'm guessing this isn't happening in a bubble. I'm thinking of some political <laughs> kind of movements in our country and maybe across the Atlantic, like the rise in that popular um, politicism. Like, is this going hand in hand? Is one influencing the other? Is that... Or is that not really something that you looked at? It's too wide.
1: I think you could definitely make that case. It's not really something that I've looked at in any great detail. Um, But I just think, you know, quite often you'll see repeated patterns throughout history where when you've got somebody or a group that are feeling in some way disenfranchised or like they're not being listened to, their needs aren't being met, they'll look for an easy way of understanding where that problem is coming from. Um, And, you know, today we've got a lot of people who are really struggling financially. You've got, obviously, cost of living crisis. Um, We've had the pandemic. We've had lots of, you know, huge societal shifts that have caused people to feel, you know, like life isn't good to them. And trying to explain to people all of the reasons why that's the case. It's a really complicated discussion to have, and I think, especially when you're talking about people that haven't necessarily got the privilege of education or, you know, the opportunity to be exposed to those kinds of conversations, they're going to look for an easy answer. And quite often, the easy answer is either to pick a specific group that are at fault, and in the case of misogynists, quite often the easy way to explain why men, why young men aren't feeling empowered is to just blame women and to blame feminists for that it's much easier to say that than it is to explain why actually it's patriarchal structures that are the reason that men feel that way. It's very difficult to explain in a simple way how patriarchy is toxic and harmful to men or explaining the concept of even toxic masculinity is incredibly difficult because people hear toxic masculinity and they think, oh, you think all masculinity is toxic. Therefore you think men are toxic. Therefore you're just a typical feminist that think men are bad. Well, in actual fact, that's not at all what toxic masculinity means. It's just talking about a very specific subset of social norms within masculinity that are incredibly harmful. But it's, it's it, it, there's a nuance to this kind of discussion that quite often people don't really want to engage with. Engage with. They'd much rather just cut to an easy answer, find a scapegoat, find a, a, someone else they can blame, and just keep it simple. And and people do that in politics as well. Um, mm. You see it a lot, particularly with like racially charged or xenophobic policy or rhetoric. That's that's definitely been normalising, being normalised in, um, in in um, both the states and across Western Europe. So. And what's the kind
0: of women's experience that you've found either through your kind of experiences talking to others or through your research as well? Um, I'm thinking particularly the kind of feminist activists that you've come across. Is it quite similar? They had similar levels of that trolling?
1: The thing that always strikes me whenever I talk to women who, you know, engage and create content online about feminism or social justice, is how normalized hostility is for them, how it's very much accepted as just part of the digital landscape that they just have to deal with if they're going to take up that space online, which I think is incredibly damning to be honest. The fact that we just think that's normal and that we just just have to take that on the chin when it is really not normal to have to deal with that. a difference between someone just disagreeing with what you think and wanting to have a good faith argument to being explicitly aggressive um, or hostile and and the fact that the latter is just so normal is is quite extraordinary um i think one of the things that really struck me is there's um, a feminist campaigner called gina martin who She's an extraordinary person and she was the person who made upskirting illegal in British law um, a number of years ago and she does a lot of her activism online and she uses her Instagram in a really powerful way to, to try and further feminist discourse and she has a spreadsheet which she's made sure that her husband has access to, which lists all of the information that she can find, like, you know, the name of the individual or the user handle, if that's all that's available, of people that have made specific threats to her. That's just a thing that she feels like she has to do kind of if slash when one of those threats turns into something, you know, that causes her physical harm. And that's that's not normal. It shouldn't be normal. And um, I think that's one of the things I really do want to to highlight in my research that this this shouldn't be an aspect of the digital landscape for female activists. People should be able to take up space without fearing for their life. Um, But you've got, you know, in, in politics as well, women disproportionately affect, like, female politicians, at least in the UK, disproportionately have to endure hostility and threats of violence and of course we had an mp that was that was killed not that long ago and i think what you know we've got to think about what the consequence of that is if people grow up seeing that this is what happens to women online who dare to take up space are they going to want to then put themselves out in the real world and make change are they going to want to you know follow in the footsteps of people that have been known to take their lives but not take their lives or have their lives taken it's it's just incredibly toxic to tolerate that. And that's really something that that I believe very strongly in highlighting.
0: And in terms of the trolling that you've experienced, like were there any formal channels to go down? Did you speak to the platform? Did you speak to TikTok? Or is there just no kind of support out there for women or other people experiencing this?
1: That's definitely one of the challenges with online content. When you experience um, or have to or, or get any kind of comment that's hostile or that you think is a threat and you should report, you first of all just have to report it to the app, and it's usually fairly straightforward to do so. But ultimately, those content that content your report is filtered by a bot. It's not a human being that reviews that, and so the consequences of that are usually pretty lukewarm quite often if i see a video for example that's explicitly misogynistic i'll report it to the app and more often than not they don't they don't take it down because they won't have used the right kind of language in the video that any kind of bot could pick up so they'll just think it's a fine video and there's nothing wrong with it and you know historically the only time that apps really take these kinds of issues seriously is when you kick up a massive fuss and you get a lot of people talking about it and then it you know it's raised by a human being behind the scenes in in one of these apps who, who does try and solve the problem. But when you're talking about the kind of scale of content that exists on these social media platforms. It's absolutely vast. So I do understand the challenge that social media companies face in trying to ensure that those environments stay safe. What I don't think is acceptable is using that as an excuse to just put your hands up and say, oh, it's too big a problem. We don't have to deal with it. Well, no, you do have to deal with it. You have a responsibility to the people who ultimately you are profiting off because they're the ones that are using your app that are giving you money effectively. Even if the apps are free, they're the ones that allow you to get advertisers so that you can make money and pay your staff. Without users, you wouldn't have a business at all. So you have an obligation to them to keep them safe. Um, and when you're talking about marginalised groups or, you know, people that are disproportionately affected by hostility and vitriol, you really do need to prioritise their well-being. And in the case of women, we make up half of the population of the planet. It's not like we're a small community. We're, we're a very significant group that deserve as much you know, care and attention on these apps as, as anybody else. Um, so, yeah, I, I do think it's not an easy problem to fix and I don't have the answer. But hopefully with more information and more pressure put on these social media companies themselves, whether that's through government or whether that's from collective action as, for us as users, the more pressure we can put on them to actually do something about it hopefully the safer the internet can be for for future generations
0: and sorry the dog's squeaking (laughs) (laughs) Hi. and thinking of kind of your experience and also research like I'm not sure if you even had to go out and actively search for some of this material like how do you protect your mental health
1: it's really challenging I'll be completely honest um I think after the first maybe 18 months on TikTok where I started to have an awful lot of followers and and my videos were getting a lot of reach and I was having to have the same difficult conversations over and over again in the comment sections with people that disagreed. And, you know, specifically as a feminist creator, you'll have people who take issue with the fact that you use the word men in general to discuss gendered issues and they'll say things like not all men and you end up having the same argument over and over again about why unless we know it's not all men, but it's enough men and we need to be having this conversation and recognizing that it's a gendered issue. You have that same conversation over and over again and it feels very demoralizing because you just feel like surely they should have, someone else must have said this to them before, like why do I need to have to keep saying this over and over? and so it's, it's difficult sometimes to feel like you are making an impact. And I did pretty much take like a good year off effectively from TikTok. I didn't really create an awful lot of content. I didn't really put much out on my Instagram. I do not really use Instagram in the, same, in the same way. Like it's just not as big a platform for me. Um, and I just sort of needed to kind of reconnect with, the, I, I suppose the real world. Like I needed to just not have that being such an all-consuming aspect of my life. Um, and I was also doing my masters. I did two masters degrees back to back for for my PhD, and so that took up an awful lot of my time. And I was also working part time in order to to fund that. So you know, I just didn't really have like the emotional bandwidth to deal with what I felt were, you know, really like not not only hostile, but some people that were just being like I felt willfully ignorant. I shouldn't have to educate every single person about feminism. I feel like that's something that people should want to learn about. And, you know, when you see the stats about things like sexual assault or domestic violence, you know, that that information is everywhere. You can't unless you're living under a rock. I don't see how you could not be aware of these being major issues. So why do you need to challenge a feminist on social media to learn about that? You should want in my view, you should want to go and learn and do more and, and, and do the work to help make for a more equal society. And it's quite hard not to get frustrated with that. Um, so, yeah, I did basically take almost a year off and was just, yeah, I just it was just too much. But then I realised how the fact that, you know, those trolls came into my comment section and the fact that I was having to deal with a lot of ignorant and hostile people, it was working, it was effectively de me, it was making me lose momentum, it was making me want to like effectively self-silence. And that's ultimately what I really don't want to happen. It's, it's the whole reason that I'm doing this research in the first place, that I believe that women should take up space and should have these conversations. Um, so for me, actually, that was a real moment of resilience was to realize that, no, I need to push through. I know this is really hard. I know that it's gonna cost me a lot emotionally um, and in terms of my mental health. But ultimately, I believe that we do have the capacity to influence change. And I want to use my voice in order to do that. Um, so, yeah, it's not it's not an easy thing, but it's something that I'm working on. And getting outside definitely helps. <laughs> Having a peak district, honestly, has just been such a lifeline throughout all of this. for sure. Oh, that's great
0: to hear. What advice would you give to those, maybe not the feminist creators, but just women in general that are on social media and are getting negative comments or even hostile comments as well?
1: Yeah, I would say just don't give them airtime. And I know that sounds like not particularly helpful advice because I know for my my own self, like if I have a video that goes viral about feminism and 99% of the comments are positive or people who are agreeing with me or having positive conversations, that 1% of comments that are hostile or are mean they'll be the ones that I fixate on they'll be the ones that keep me up at night and really like that isn't a good use of my like my time or energy to think about that and um back in the day I used to feel like I needed to challenge every single person that didn't agree with me and try and get them on board and I've realized that's just it's not for me to have to do that it costs too much for me to do that and I am allowed to safeguard my own well-being so I now don't tend to really respond to people more often than not i leave it or i'll delete it if it's if it's a very mean comment or something that's going to hurt someone else in my community just delete it like you don't need you don't need to have to give that person your space either in your head or like on your comment section just delete it report it ignore it whatever but just do whatever it's going to take for you to you know safeguard your own mental health and your own platform because you're the one that's in control of your platform and um, you don't have to give anybody the time of day that, that you don't want to. Um,
0: and the men listening or women that kind of want to support other women, like what can we do to support people like you in this quest? <laughs>
1: um, I think one of the things I do find incredibly helpful is if I have a video where, you know, there's a large number of people that are saying or you know perpetuating negative or incorrect information in the comment section when you have other women coming together and being like no in a respectful way here's why you're wrong or like challenging it so that I don't have to do it all the time that feels really positive and also it's just lovely to see that there is more than just me in this kind of fight if that makes sense but ultimately i think just not being afraid to stand up for something that you believe in is incredibly important and um People are very quick, I think, to be dismissive about the impact that social media can have on facilitating change. But we know that it does. And um, your one Instagram post or your one comment on someone else's, you know, video that's in support of other women or in support of feminism or in support of social justice. It might just feel like a drop in the ocean, but the ocean is made out of drops. And if collectively we will stop tolerating things that have historically kept women and other marginalized groups down we we can see a better future and um hopefully we can i don't know start to see some real change
0: what does the future feel like for you does it feel hopeful like what would happen if tiktok got taken down overnight is it just gonna come up in some other form how do you see it
1: i don't see social media going away anytime soon i mean i don't know about tiktok specifically i think um unfortunately for tiktok because it's owned by a Chinese company, I think a lot of other Western countries look at it with a bit more of a wary eye. So there's there is more of a chance, I suppose, than things like Instagram or, or Facebook being taken down. Um, but yeah, I don't see I don't see TikTok going anywhere anytime soon. I don't see social media disappearing. I think it's become part of our social fabric. And it does have huge change making potential it already has facilitated change not just in the western world but globally um and i think as long as we start you know really working hard to make sure that these spaces are properly safe pressuring our legislative bodies wherever they may be to actually make these places better and safer environments for people to be i don't see why they can't you know stand the test of time and become something that's that you know future generations will see as a useful tool just as the internet in general is a useful tool just as books are a useful tool for facilitating change and having conversation you know it's all content that allows people to share their thoughts and share their ideas so it definitely has the potential to be an incredible force for good I think there's an awful lot of work to get there but I'm always inspired by the number of people that are willing to put in that work and are willing to have those difficult conversations. Um, And yeah, I I think think it's here to stay. And I just hope that we're able to make it a more positive and safe environment.
0: And what's in your future? Like you've got your PhD. I'm not sure you've probably still got quite a few years of that. They seem to go on for a long time (laughs) from friends that have done them like is there an end goal is there a plan for what you're going to be doing in the future
1: gosh I really don't know I feel like (laughs) I've been asked that question a few times I'm really just making up as I go along Um, That's fine
0: so am I (laughs) yeah
1: I think in an ideal world I would love to to put all of my thoughts into a into a book and I think um just even in in the short amount of time that i've been doing this research i feel like i've learned and grown so much in my own feminist beliefs and understanding of like the different kind of you know lenses through which you can have these feminist conversations um so i'd like to try and consolidate that in, into something but honestly absolutely no idea i <laughs> as i go along hopefully still still being loud <laughs> on the internet at the same time probably <laughs>
0: Is there anything else that kind of strikes you that we haven't covered when it comes to resilience?
1: I feel like resilience ultimately is a choice, isn't it? Like every day we can either choose to go out with all of our, you know, bruises and cuts from whatever it is that's tried to like get in the way of us doing what we need to do, going out and actually just like persevering and working towards our goals. And even if that goal is just to make it to the end of the day, sometimes that's enough. I don't think there's anything wrong with having those times where you just need to like retreat into your shell and just do some healing that's absolutely fine and I do that on a regular basis but those days where in spite of people telling you that you shouldn't do something or you can't do something or saying that you're wrong or whatever if you have real conviction and belief in yourself and in what you're trying to do then that's real resilience it's just like going out and, and making that happen. And, you know, for me, that's believing absolutely that I and anyone else like me has the right to take up space online and has the right to use their voice, to try and make the world a little bit better. Um, so, yeah, that's that's kind of my view on resilience anyway.
0: <laughs> I love it. And thank you for all your content and being so inspiring, but also being really um, informative and educating people about feminism and your beliefs. Oh, thank you,
1: Jen. Yes, yeah, a real pleasure.
0: <laughs> Good luck with the PhD. And um, when you've got the book out, I will be chatting to you again.
1: <laughs> oh, absolutely. <laughs> It'll be my pleasure. Sure.
0: Thank you so much for your time. Thank you for listening to the Resilience Rising podcast. If you have enjoyed this episode, please do help people find us by hitting subscribe, leaving a review or sharing us with others. Thank you so much and see you next time on the Resilience Rising podcast.